again and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here in the Bold Love Podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Hello again, my name is Josh Tate and welcome back to the Bold Love Podcast. This season, which is themed unlikely, will focus on conversations that allow us to hear from people that are different than us, different faiths, different worldviews, different ideas, and it will help shape the way we communicate to one another. And today, Pastor Bob gets the chance to talk with David Beasley. Mr. Beasley is the executive director of the World Food Program, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2020. The former governor of South Carolina spent a decade working with high profile leaders and on the ground managers in more than 100 countries. He directed projects designed to foster peace, reconciliation, and economic progress. His work has allowed him to develop deep relationship with leaders all around the world, and he continues that work, bridging political, religious, and ethnic boundaries to champion economic development and education. And Mr. Beasley will actually be one of the keynote speakers at the Global Faith Forum in March here in Dallas, Texas. The Global Faith Forum is uh, one of the first national gatherings of Christians and Muslims and other faith leaders that will gather to discuss how we can bridge the gap in our communities as the fear between the faiths shouldn't be something that causes us to destroy one another, but to understand one another better so we can move forward building flourishing communities and push out hate and push out polarization. It's going to be an amazing event and you are invited. Space is limited and it's filling up. So reserve your spot now at globalfaithforum.com. That's globalfaithforum.com. And now I want to go ahead and welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. with David Beasley. David Beasley, your beard looks awesome. What a man. I've been waiting for that. I mean, you're a Southerner from South Carolina. You need that beard. (laughs) I mean, you look like a man finally. I mean, you look like a banker before then, but now you look like a real he-man. I'm proud of you. Well, I'm trying to emulate my brother. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what do I call you? I mean, you're a governor. I mean, you're you're head of the World Food Program. You've been a you've been a representative. Uh, you've done everything. What do people call you, Governor Beasley? Well, all types of things. It depends on if it's enemy or friend or foe. You know that type of thing. <laughs> I get all kind of names, but but you know, Jesus called everybody "Hello, brother." Hello, Amen. Sister. Hello, friend. That that works good for me. How about that? I'm and so you know what? It's good to be with you. I love that because you have been a brother to me. You've been a friend to me. I remember the first time we met uh, in northern Iraq, uh, running across that part of the country, talking about how we could work with people and and serve them. And, you know, I'd never been with a governor before. And you loved Jesus. Now, that was a shock to me. I mean, I was used to politicians, but I didn't know there were politicians that were really sincere about their faith. I mean, how does this happen, David? I'm curious. Well, it's a long journey. You know, we're all created uh, by the Almighty. We're all created in the image of the Almighty. And that's a pretty good start right there, knowing you're already special, but yet at the same time, because we all are created in the image, we're all equal. And so then you begin to realize, you know, I got to be serious about 
not religion, but by, by my faith, you know, because, uh, and that took me a while. It really did. Uh, and it was back somewhere back in the 1980s where I decided, you know, I really need to make a genuine commitment uh, to follow the Lord. And how do I do that? What does that mean in my life? And we all know that the fundamental purpose of all of life is to love God and love neighbor. And so that's what I try to do uh, every day. And uh, I'm always failing at it, Bob. You know that. My goodness. Uh, that's one of the wonderful things about uh, forgiveness is that you can kind of make a mistake, own up to it, and hopefully. Uh, be but you know, person. Governor, one of the things I love about you is you got guts. I mean, you're the guy who goes and you changes the flag of South Carolina. I'm just curious. What was that like? I mean, you're in a southern state. The flag needs to be changed and you do it. Yeah. Well, it was the right thing to do, Bob. And, you know, my family has an incredible history in the South. And I can tell you all type of stories of my family and the history of the war, the war. Uh, but there came a time when it was just the right thing to do to fly a flag that was not the sovereign flag was really in the face of a lot of people. It did no good. It's one thing to fly in a historical perspective. That's a different discussion. And so we felt like it was the time to do what was right uh, and honor the sovereignty of the state over the dome. And uh, that's what we did. And of course, as you well know, it cost me politically, but you know, we're not called to win elections. We're called to be obedient to truth, do what's good, do what's right and let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, I remember the night that I lost my election uh, and it was primarily because of, of that flag issue. I asked my team uh, uh, three questions. I said, number one, did we do what was right? I said, uh, yes or no? And everybody said, <laughs> yes. You know, it was my team. Uh, unfortunately, you know, jokingly. And I said, well, number two, when we did what was right, uh, did we do it at the right time? In other words, we didn't do it when it was politically expedient. We did it no matter what the cost was, it was the right time. And they said, yes, we definitely did it when it was right at the right time. I said, okay, then number three, when we did what was right at the right time, did we do it the right way? Did we do it out of judgment, hatred, division, and bitterness, or did we do it out of love, compassion for our neighbor in a way that would honor the Almighty? And they said, well, we did it that way. I said, so we did what was right at the right time, the right way. I said, we've been successful. We've been obedient. That's all that matters. Leave the rest up uh, to a power above ourselves. And let's just keep focused on doing what's good and what's right. You know what I call that, David? Leadership. Leadership. No, I'm so tired of, of leadership that... You know, I, you and I have a friend, Suhel Khan, and, and Suhel has always told me, he said, Bob, politicians always get in front of the parade and claim credit. <laughs> and you know what I like about you, David, you've always been a prophetic leader. Uh, I don't care what you've done. You've been a legitimate leader. We so desperately need this in our country today. People who, yeah, I understand politicians, you got to look at the polls, but I love it when they say this is right and this may cost me. Here's good news, David. Maybe tough for you uh, politically in some ways, but historically you're going down good in history. You'll be remembered as one of the good guys, one of the people to emulate. And even more than history, I think you and I both know Jesus loves what you've done. He's been with you every step of the way. Well, you know, you look in the mirror and you got to look at the man in the mirror. And, and that is extremely important. 
Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did what was right? Because at the end of the day, uh, you're going out of office at some point in time anyway, but at the end of the day, can you hang your head high and say, you know, I did what was right. And I, it, <laughs> I'd rather lose any day doing what's right than win and not do what's right. And you don't do what's right, end up losing anyway. And I talked to many of my friends who went out the other way and they, and they look at me and said, you know, you don't know how lucky you are uh, that when you lost that time, you did what was right. And now you've been vindicated. And I'm like, well, you, you, you don't do it to be vindicated. You just do what's right and move on. And, and, uh, and that's, that's life's mystery. Lord will shut one door and another door will open. And uh, if you've been obedient, then you've been successful according to uh, the creator, not according to man's standards, which are, as you know, can be two yeah. different things. So you do have quite a background story, historical family, start out as a banker, get into politics, and now you're heading up the World Food Program and, and not just uh, in a mediocre way, but I mean, you guys won the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. How does someone make the journey? I mean, I'm just curious, what were some of those inflection points? I mean, it's a pretty radical journey. You should have either stayed politics or whatever, but you've been consistent in my mind in the fact that you want to make a difference and deal with real issues. How does someone turn out like this? You know, before I took this role and, and I took this job sort of kicking and screaming, as C.S. Lewis would say, I guess. And that was I wasn't looking for a job in any administration. You remember Bush and I were very good friends and he got elected and I didn't take a role there. And then Trump gets elected and people say, well, I, you know, do you want to take a role? I'm like, no, I, I don't. I'm. I'm really enjoying doing what I'm doing. I'm doing peace work behind the scenes around the world, and I'm not looking for a job. And then I got this call from a friend who said, would you consider taking a role at the uh, senior level role at the United Nations? And I said, no way. I'm not interested in any job with anybody. And they said, well, if you don't, you know, we're, we're scared of Trump. And I, <laughs> and I laughed. I said, well, you should be. And so we laughed. And I remembered my wife, Mary Wood, uh, the night before has said, you know, the world's in trouble and leaders like you need to re-engage. And, uh, and I'm like, well, Mary Wood, I know you're not asking me to get back involved in politics and in Washington. She said, no, no. She said, I'm just asking you not to say no before you pray about it. And that was, and that hit me. And so when this friend of mine from the UN called me and when I said, not a chance, you know, and, and I, I was kind of saying, I'm not a UN kind of guy, you know, that kind of thing. And then I remembered what Mary Wood said to me. And uh, and we talked a little bit more, that particular fella. And then I called a friend of mine uh, named Tony Hall, who was a Dem former Democrat congressman who knew all about the World Food Program. And I said, Tony, tell me about the World Food Program. <laughs> and Tony is, is one of my prayer partners and Democrats and Republicans in Washington get together. You know, that's a miracle in itself. And so... Uh, I said, Tony, tell me about the World Food Program. He said, oh, my God, if there's ever God's work on earth, I'm like, Tony, the United Nations World Food Program. And he laughed and he said, no, it's the most amazing operation. And so anyway, a lot of my friends, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, in the House, said you, you need to take this role because if aid like that, effective international foreign aid like that is cut, We'll end up with more wars, more conflict, more destabilization, more mass migration. They said, you've got to do it because you're 
one of the few that can reverse this administration's thinking. I said, well, let me work on reversing this administration's thinking. I still don't want a job. Well, anyway, here we are four and a half years later, and we doubled the budget because of crisis around the world. We've received, as you know, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize Award uh, that we were awarded last year, and I gave the Nobel Peace Prize speech just recently, which was an extraordinary moment. But Bob, let me tell you, we feed about 115, 20 million people in, in over 80 countries. And what we do is all about really the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself. And I, I can tell you, I never would have thought if you'd have asked me five years ago, would I be uh, a senior leader in the United Nations worldwide? And I would have said, not a chance, but here I am. And uh, I can tell you, my children said, Dad, we loved it when you were a governor, but this has been the most fulfilling thing in your life, you know, helping people, feeding people, bringing people hope. So anyway, that's awesome. You know, we, we are at an unprecedented crisis with reference to food, climate change, coronavirus, uh, refugees have doubled in the last 10 years. Uh, the war, the civil wars, I was listening to a, to a podcast the other day. Uh, we no longer have the, the infrastructures and the tools to put down civil wars in other countries like we used to. So, I mean, it's, it's only going to get worse. I mean, man, that sounds pessimistic. And I don't like saying that, but but how are you changing the minds of people, Governor? What are you doing to help everybody get on board? I was I was uh I was rooting for you with uh Elon Musk. He's moving to Texas. And uh, I've got some uh, serious ancestors that died in the Alamo. So I'm going to I'm going to use any of that I can if I ever get to meet him and say, dude, come on, you got to give it up. What are you doing to, to highlight it? I mean, getting the Nobel Peace Prize certainly does and your work in and of itself. But the people who have the money to change it and the governments, what's the key to that? You know, when I arrived here four and a half years ago in this role, I began looking at the poverty rate, historical uh, hunger rate over the past few hundred years. And it's hard to believe that 200 years ago, 95% of the people on earth were in extreme poverty. So Bob, in the last 200 years, we have built systems and programs and institutions that sharing more wealth than any time period uh, in, in world history. And you've been a part of those institutions and programs around the world, and particularly and especially in the United States. So that's a very good thing. But the bad news, we're still not reaching 10% of the population around the world. Try telling them, those 800, 900 million people that, are, that go to bed chronically hungry every night. And so, hey, how are you experiencing this better way of life? And they will say, well, we're not. So we can't give up on them. But here's Here's the really bad news. The bad news is in the last five years, we started going backwards. So there's one thing called chronic hunger. That's about 810 million people on any given day and night go to bed chronically hungry. Then you have those that are, as we would say, marching towards starvation. They're in trouble, serious trouble. Bob, when I took this role four and a half years ago, there were 80 million people marching towards starvation. That number jumped from 80 million to 135 million Whoa. right before COVID. COVID, and, and well, ask why. The answer is man-made conflict, people not loving the neighbor, man-made conflict, and climate extremes, climate shocks, et cetera. Then COVID comes along and the number spikes 
from 135 million to 281 million people marching towards starvation. And out of that, 45 million are knocking on famine's door as we speak. So this is why, because we have this one-time unprecedented perfect storm of conflict, climate, and COVID, the governments are tapped out and these billionaires, and I'm all for people making money. Hey, capitalism, make money, but you obviously have an obligation to and responsibility with what you have to help those in need. And so when guys like Elon Musk and Bezos, and I could go on a list of many, many others, whose net worth is $150 billion to $250 billion, all I need because of this unprecedented perfect storm is $6 billion dollars in addition to my normal funding, to reach those that are knocking on famine's door. That's one day's worth of their net worth increase. That's all I'm asking for in this unprecedented time. That's not too much to ask. And Bob, let me tell you what happens if we don't reach those people. It's not just that they may die, and many will, but we will have destabilization of nations and mass migration, and the costs will be a thousand times more than our feeding somebody in a war zone for less than 50 cents a day. Because you you know, understand what I'm talking about there. The cost of war globally is like $15 trillion. And we're just talking about $6 billion. It's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. And so I'm making that one-time plea to the world billionaires. Please help us in this one time. Uh, Bill Gates getting involved with you? Well, in fact, I talked with Bill Gates a couple of weeks ago, you know, and Bill put forth, well, I don't know, the the commitment he made over half of his monies into, uh, you know, helping people around the world. Now, Bill hasn't given us and substantially responded on this request, but he has responded in many other ways. And I'm like, look, I don't mind if you don't give it to me, but do get involved in the game, get on the field, help people with your money. And it all, you know, kind of cross pollinates and helps in other ways. Yeah. Well, I I just want to encourage Elon Musk. You're coming to Texas now. Think big, man. Think big, do big. Don't let them outdo us. I mean, that's peanuts. Uh, We're Baptist in Texas and we believe in something called tithing. So six million is a piece of cake, man. And, And I bet David, you'd let him hang out with you a little bit. If he wanted to see what was going on and and uh, get an up close personal look at that. And, uh, you know, Tesla's coming to Texas. And uh, I just I just think, uh, you know, you, you may not know this, David, but Texas has more missionaries and more soldiers than any other state in the union. And we're pretty passionate about helping people. We really are. It doesn't matter what it is. Hey, let me ask you this. You you and I both have a heart for Afghanistan. That's where I first started working with Muslims. I'm hearing reports like starvation is coming. Is that true? Is it false? I mean, a lot of times we don't know. We we hear things in the news, but how do we know what is? Is it true? Bob, it's bad. I've been, I just got back from Afghanistan. I was in Kabul as well as in Kandahar, meeting with leaders, meeting with Taliban. I've had multiple meetings with the Taliban and others in the last few months. I've been in the region now three or four times just in the past few months because of our concern of what was happening and is happening. That's a nation of 41 million people, 20 years of war and conflict. It was already poverty stricken uh, before the Taliban took over, but you compound the conflict along with COVID, and then they got droughts. In fact, a 40% wheat reduction 
and production oh, wow. of their harvesting is taking place now. So now, Bob, this is unbelievable. Out of 41 million people, 23 million are what we call marching towards starvation. Nine million knocking on famine's door. I've met with mothers. I went to hospitals. I was out in the field. And like mothers selling a child to a family they think can feed that child, they take that money and hopefully uh, feed their children. And so now you have the winter months coming. They don't have jobs. There's no liquidity into the economy, hardly at all. And a mother, if she has any money at all, she's telling me that I don't have enough money to buy cooking fuel and heating fuel. So either I've got to freeze my children to death or starve my children to death. And in the hospitals, I was seeing it, talking to the doctors, watching children die before my very own eyes. And the doctors are saying, they're the lucky ones that make it to the hospital. And then we get them recovered. And then they go home to what? No more food. And so it's just a vicious cycle. It's getting worse. And the extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they are now recruiting because they know there's a food crisis. So they're recruiting using food that, that they have so they can you know, increase their numbers. And so you're talking about if we don't reach these people and you can say, well, you know, they, we can't help the people in Afghanistan. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. These are, these are children we're talking about. They're innocent victims of conflict. And if you don't support them, it's not just that they will die, but they'll be radicalized. Then you have more yeah. extremist groups, more violence than you can ever imagine. And it's going to cost yeah. a thousand times more than going in there and helping and doing what's doing what's right. How were you received? Were you afraid? Were they, uh, you being an American, what was that like? Well, you know me, I go, <laughs> I go everywhere like you. And so, uh, you know, the meetings I had with the Taliban, and this was go shock you, uh, very practical conversations. Uh, and they've actually delivered on every assurance they gave me. I said, look, you need to understand, I have to operate independent, neutral, and impartial. You can't touch my operations, not a dime, not a person. And they said, we understand. And they've honored that. They've actually protected our warehouses. They've allowed us to put women to work, put girls back in school, because we do a lot of school meals programs with girls and boys. And so they've honored uh, their word to us so far. And that's not just in Kabul, that's out in some of the, even the most conservative areas like Kandahar, where I went out and met with the governor, met with Taliban leaders there and had very practical conversations. And it was interesting. And I'm not sitting here defending any group because we are neutral, but many of the Taliban leaders were saying, you know, this is we're tired of war. We want to, we want to get back on the right track with the American people, and uh, we want to work together against extremism. I, I was just sitting there, just shocked to hear this, uh, but that's a political discussion there. That's not my business. My business is humanitarian, and so we're able to reach the people we need to reach. We just need the money to do so, Bob, and the cost of feeding 23 million people just at 50%. 50% rations. And for those in what we call IPC3 and those in IPC4, that's 75% rations. That's $220 million a month. Wow. A month. That's what it costs uh, to feed that many people, Bob. But if we don't, it's going to cost dozens of billions in military activity, et cetera, et cetera. Hundreds well, what would you say to an everyday person, an American, a follower of Jesus, somebody who's a hardworking blue collar person who's listening to this and they're going, man, I wish I had money. What, what, what can they do? 
Well, first and foremost, don't underestimate the number of people that might be struggling in your own neighborhood, your own community. You know, that's, that's, that's your neighbor too. Your neighbor, love your neighbors, not just in Afghanistan or, or in you know, Dallas, Texas or wherever it might be. It's all over the world, but first look at your own home area. What can you do there? Two is yes, you can uh, help us or any other organization out there. And we're the world food program and we have a share the meal dot uh, org or wp.org go there and, and donate some money and you know it costs us about 25 cents to feed a child and about 40 something cent in a war zone to feed a, a person because we move so much money and food and buy so much we can do it at a very low cost as you can only imagine but number three is is pray literally pray for peace and pray that hearts will be moved and and four don't hesitate to con- contact your congressman or senator and say, hey, support these people. Uh, I don't necessarily say support all international aid because I think there's some international aid that really could be revamped and used more strategically. But when when I've talked to key senators and key leaders, it's about strategic, effective international aid. And that's what the World Food Program is all about. And so support helping these people that are in need right now uh, because number one, we have a moral obligation to do so. And if you're not going to do it out of the goodness of your heart, then do it out of your national security interest or your yeah. interest. And I can give you those numbers and, lot, and really roll them out to help you explain, help understand why it's cheaper, you know, in many, many ways. David, we both love Jesus. We both follow him. We were both impacted profoundly by Doug Coe and, and other people in our life that that spoke into us. Uh, I, I know you probably would not uh, call yourself evangelical, but a follower of Jesus. I would be in, you know, I'm an evangelical pastor, not a political evangelical, but I'm a Jesus loving Bible believing Christians. You know, David, I, I'm, I'm burdened that we ought to be at the front of the line as followers of Jesus, giving money, serving. And sometimes I hear from evangelicals, oh, we got to watch out for them. We've been at war with them, or it's their own fault. They now need to live with the consequences. My heart gets broken as I listen to some of the excuses for not helping the least of these. You've spent your whole life helping the least of these. What would you say to Bible-believing, Jesus-loving evangelicals? What could we do? I mean, I dream of the church coming together. I don't care if they're Muslims or Jews or Buddhists. But I dream of Christians serving everybody, not just their own tribe. But what would you say, what should we be doing as as Jesus followers? Well, first, you need to be careful not to be judging situations you don't have all the facts. Be very careful about false judgment. That's a that's a pretty simple rule of thumb to be uh, cautious about. Uh, and number two, you know, Jesus didn't say love your enemy uh, except when it's convenient. He said, love your enemy. And that doesn't mean capitulating politics or anything like that either. But he didn't say, love your enemy, uh, except when it's a Republican or except when it's a Democrat, or, except when it's a liberal or except when it's a Catholic or except when it's a Protestant or Baptist. Or, you know, I see a lot of times that the Methodist Jesus and the Baptist Jesus don't even talk to each other. You know, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. You know? <laughs> I hear you. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, when Jesus was asked that question, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, which is Deuteronomy. Then he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as your 
equal as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. And all the law and the prophet hangs on those two. So every day, you know, if you want the Almighty, that spirit, his spirit to live through you to achieve those things, then all right, loving my neighbor as Jesus said, I think it was Matthew 7, 12. He says, all the law of the prophet hangs on that one simple verse, which just goes to the Torah. And the Torah, as you well know, applies to Muslims, Christians, and Jews. I mean, if you want to talk about the wars around the world, if we could just get the three Abrahamic religion, you know, people who claim to follow in, in that theology, so to speak, or those religions to stop fighting each other, to love one another as well as the Jew Jesus, the Jewish man, or uh, the Muslim prophet, Isa el Messiah, or the Savior, Jesus the Christ. So take your pick. Either way, whether you see Jesus as a man or, or a prophet or as a Savior, uh, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as your equal. What's complicated about that? And yeah. he gave a good Samaritan story about, okay, even you got to love your enemy. But do it in such a way uh, this authentic and doing it such a way that makes a difference. And that doesn't mean you capitulate on politics. Uh, it's like I've said before, you can stand for what is right, but don't do it out of hatred and judgment and condemnation, do it out of love and compassion. And you'll be amazed at what happens. And when I was given the Nobel peace prize speech just recently, um, I challenged the world. I said, I've got uh, four golden rule action steps on how we can love our neighbor or our love our equal. And you, you say, well, what do you mean love your neighbor versus love your neighbor versus love your equal? Well, the ancient Jewish translation, Hebrew translation of love your neighbor as yourself is really love your neighbor as your equal because we're all made in the image of God. And therefore, when I'm loving that, that's what Jesus was talking about. When you that's love good. your neighbor, you're loving the image of God and that's your equal and we're all special. So, if you want to end racism, discrimination, sexism, then start respecting and loving uh, your equal out there. And so number one, action step for the golden rule. Number one, leaders of the world, United States, China, Russia, India, the Gulf states, EU, the UK, wherever, we need you to assert your powers and stop these horrible wars. The global cost of violence, war, conflict is $15 trillion a year. We could solve every humanitarian and poverty problem on earth with $15 trillion. Wow. That's number one. Number two is billionaires now who made trillions, over $1.7 trillion in the past year, give us the $6 billion right now to avert famine and save 45 million lives. And number three, billionaires, because Long-term charity is not the answer. We need for the billionaires to take their, the people of wealth, their ingenuity, their creativity, their genius, and let's solve the problem of hunger uh, going forward. Uh, they built rockets and phones and technology. Now let's build a system where hunger has no place in the world and no child would die. And number four, and here's to me the best of all, and that is let's break down all the divisions of the world the old fashioned way. And so how do you do that? Well, by sitting down and breaking bread together. I don't care if you're black with a white person, if you're white with a black person or with a Latino or an Asian, if you're Muslim with a Christian, but you, you get my point, rich person, poor person, sit down, break bread together, get to know each other and you'll realize, wow, 
you know, our differences are so small. I think if we would follow that model, and that's a model that Jesus of Nazareth taught, as you well know very clearly. You see it in Acts 2.42 and breaking bread and having fellowship together, etc. And so breaking bread is a powerful tool. And so at the World Food Program, we use bread, we use food as a weapon of peace, of reconciliation, to bring hope and peace. And as we said, food is a pathway to peace. And so that's the World Food Program. And that's, in my opinion, the simplicity of one of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And a powerful four-point sermon. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, if they would, right now. I want you to reach into your back pocket, get the biggest bill out, put it in that offering plate. Yes. I love it, David. You know, David, there is a word that comes to mind when I think about you. You've had a lot of positions, but there's been one consistent behavior about you, your life. I don't care what your job was, you did this. You're a peacemaker. Well, you're, you're a peacemaker. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. pure and simple. It doesn't matter if it's racial or economic or political. I love the fact that you don't mind going over to the other side. We're living in a time of radical polarization. I know you, David, you're conservative. You are no liberal. You're conservative, Republican, Jesus loving. And yet I know for a fact you love Democrats. And I know for a fact you've worked on the racial issue. How do we get more peacemakers in this world? I mean, everybody just looks at what it is and we've become tribalized. Help us, David. What does it take to be a peacemaker? Well, first thing in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, uh, and that means everybody. And when you see things from God's perspective, that's, Bob, one of the things I've learned more deeply in the last few years, when you go to as many countries I go to every, every week, you begin to see the world in a much deeper uh, and broader sense. You begin to see humanity as a whole. And then you begin to see that, wow, every human being on the earth is creating the image of God. And that's my neighbor. And Jesus didn't say love your, your uh, enemy except those you don't like politically. He said love your enemy. And again, that doesn't mean you agree uh, on politics. Uh, you, some of my best friends when I was in the House of Representatives, were my biggest enemies on the floor. We would fight it out on issues on the floor, but it was always civil, always respectful. You know, I might would say, oh, you know, Bob Roberts, he's got a proposal dealing with children, and uh, he's just wrong. I know he means well, but he just doesn't have (laughs) his his bill is going to hurt children in South Carolina. He's a good fella, you know. And then we would vote. And you would win or I would win. And then we would walk off the floor together, arm in arm, and go have dinner together. And the people that I would disagree with sometimes the most were the ones I most respected because they fought for what they believed in and did it in an honorable way. And so we've got to really understand that blessed are the peacemakers. You're not called to love your enemy with community. That's, that's a command. You know, I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when you start reading the scriptures, and you begin to realize, wow, I'm not doing this right. I can do this better. And you'll be shocked at what happens when you sit down with the enemy and break bread together, have some fellowship. You'll be amazed at what happens. You may not end up agreeing 
uh, on a particular subject, you will definitely come to an agreement. I've seen it, Bob, you know, in the U.S. Senate, in the U.S. House, there's a group of Democrats, Republicans, male and female that meet every Wednesday and Thursday morning, Democrats, Republicans, and they don't vote alike, but boy, those men and women are the peacemakers inside the Capitol in a time like, like this. We need more peacemakers now than any time period. You know, social media, when you get a Twitter or Facebook, everybody's just whipping at each other without knowing any of the facts, condemning people without any forgiveness and reconciliation and brokenness is the number one problem on earth right now. It really oh. is. Alienation, brokenness, division, and uh, whether it's mother and father or son and daughter or politics or whatever the case may be. And so forgiveness is what we need to restore, Bob. I mean, it really, really is. And, you know, David, I do. I agree with what you said. The fourth point of what you gave uh, to, the, to your uh, Nobel uh, Peace Prize speech it's breaking bread. You know, I work with pastors and imams all over the world and some of the worst hell holes of the world. And uh, that's what we've discovered. If they get to know one another, it just changes everything. It's not that they found a new verse in the Bible, the Quran or the Torah. It's just they humanize one another. March 6 and 7, we're having a big deal at Northwood. You've been at Northwood before. And uh, the president of the Muslim World League, Muhammad Ali, says coming, and they just came up, or he did, with the charter of Mecca. And it's the whole idea of living in toleration with one another. And we're looking at coming together to saying as Christians and Muslims and Jews, let, let, let's get along. But we're doing it in the States, but we're going to be working around the world together. And we are people who never mix. I mean, we don't even meet. I mean, as Muslims and evangelicals, this may be the first national gathering of everyday Muslims and Christians that's ever happened. I, I don't know. But my question is this. Why did you agree to come to that? You're a busy guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a Baptist, not a rich Presbyterian, but you're coming anyhow. And I'm grateful. Why did you agree to do that? Well, it's simple. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, when you go to a lot of places around the world, it's Christians fighting Christians or Muslims fighting Muslims or Muslims fighting Christians or vice versa or whatever the case may be. And and I, I to me, it's really quite simple. Uh, every human being on earth, I have a moral obligation to love my neighbor. Uh, and if I think I'm right on something, well, the best thing I can do is sit down with them and try to explain my position, but get to know them first. And Bob, I have found when I disagree with somebody from what I've read in the news or, and then, but I found when I sit down with them and break bread together and begin to hear their side of the story, it might not change my view, but it, you definitely earn respect. And when you listen to someone else's heart and, and really do it authentically, and then you began to talk because once you understand their language, it's sort of like Paul, you know, understand the language of the people you're talking with. So you can articulate uh, the way they're thinking. And so when you sit down with someone you've listened to and they respect that and you respect them, again, doesn't mean you agree with them and then talk back with them in a way that they understand. It's amazing how the barriers start coming down and you begin to realize, well, we can at least be brothers and not fight. And we can be brothers that love each other uh, as we are commanded by the scriptures. And it'll be remarkable of all the things that will come from that, even though you might disagree on some theological points, but bottom line at the end of the day, 
love your neighbor as yourself. Blessed are the peacemakers. And you can't be a peacemaker if you're just kicking things down the road and throwing things at people. Yeah. You know why I invited you to come, David? I'm, we're going to have ambassadors, diplomats, government leaders. Uh, not all of them are speaking, but but you will be. The reason I invited you to come was twofold. Number one, I know you and I trust you. And I know you to be somebody who loves people and you serves, uh, serve others. You, you model that. So that's that's number one. You emulate what I wish every Jesus-loving Christian could emulate. But here's the second reason. I got a dream. I dream of Christians and Muslims and Jews, some of us like me who have, who have exclusivist views about Jesus, to love one another so deeply, to love people so equally. My word, what could we do in the world if we lived out our faith? Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine evangelical Christians and Muslims coming together to say, hey, we may disagree, but we all love God and we love our neighbor and we want to feed the world. And here's what I believe about you, David. You're positioned. You're the offering plate. God has put you where he has to be a receptacle of what we could do. David, I want you to challenge, challenge us with everything you've got, because there's a lot of rich Muslims and rich Christians and rich Jews in the world. But we've, we've got to love people. We've got to love people, and we don't. And I know you do, David. And my heart is heavy. I'm tired of, I would like for this to be historical, not the event, but what comes out of the event that literally from that event, billions of dollars came together as evangelical pastors and imams and, and rabbis around the world begin to say, you know what? We disagree. We're going to work together. And here all your life, Perhaps God has been preparing you for this moment. Why couldn't there be a trillion dollars that came from Muslims, Christian, and Jewish leaders around the world? And it starts right there. I got, I got other dreams, David. I dream of cities of refuge for refugees. Instead of spending trillions of dollars and, and raising cane about, oh, we don't want any more refugees. Wouldn't it be cool if we could build cities all over the world for refugees? What if the goodness of God was seen in human beings? That's my dream. And I think this is a start. And we'll have more to share at the event, but we're picking out one of the toughest places in the world where Christians and Muslims don't get along. And we're going to get the clerics together. And I think one of the most practical things that we can do as a community project, as humanitarian project, is to feed people. And here's the thing, David. I believe in the sovereignty of God. You're gifted, David, but more than being gifted, you've been ordained by God to be in the spot that you're in. I don't want to waste what he's done with you, what he's done with me, what he's done with us. And I, I want to thank you for coming, David. I, I'm, I'm grateful. And I love you. Well, brother, I love you too. And I look forward to being with you. And, you know, I'm just a ordinary man and um you know 
in the scriptures that says, all those who are led by the spirit are the children of God. Uh, and as children of God, we're brothers and sisters. Uh, we're not Republicans and Democrats and this and that, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters because we're all created by, by the, by the, by the almighty and the father in heaven. So it's, to me, it's simple. And so, you know, Christians that don't follow Jesus, and you know, Muslims that don't follow Jesus, you know, I mean, you, you get my point. They don't follow the teachings of the scripture. And uh, we all can do better, every single one of us, and we all can learn from one another. I haven't found a human being on earth that I couldn't learn something from if I would just take the time to listen. Again, you might not agree with that person in a lot of ways, but that person was creating the image of God. And I can assure you, if you'll just give it a shot, you'll find something that person can teach you. In the meantime, you know, one of the greatest comments and statements by uh, Jesus was at the Last Supper. And he said, he says, I got a new command for you. In, in, in a lot of ways, it's not you, but it, 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 but it is in another way. He says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. But then he adds this really extraordinary kicker. He says, by this, the world will know you're my disciple by your love for one another. Yes. So if you want someone to know what your faith really is, it doesn't require a single word. And I've challenged, as you know, Bob, a lot of my pastoral friends prove that you are a disciple of the Almighty without words. In other words, how are you going to do it? Because Jesus says, if you love others like I've loved you, the world will know. Imagine if we put that into action every day, what it would do overnight, we'd have a revolution of peace all around the world. Now, David, one last quick question. Number one, I wish you would run for president. I know that's not on your desire, but I wish you would. But number two, tell me about your most uh, colorful ancestor from South Carolina. Ooh, my the craziest, goodness. wildest one. Ah, oh, my goodness. I, I, Man I or woman? I've got a, a from my mother who was a character and, and teacher at schools and she would chew out the principal, anybody that got in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everybody says I got my spunk from my mother, you know, the, 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 so the your mama, you know, my mama gave me the courage to speak out, but she dedicated her life to helping people. I could tell you story after story. When I was a little kid, I keep, Oh my gosh. When I was a little kid, about eight, nine years old, and she was doing social service work. And back then, you didn't get any support from the law enforcement. It was just the way it was back in the 60s. And somebody would be like a drunk husband would be beating her husband. I mean, her wife, his wife and kids. And we would go hide out in a ditch in the middle of the night at two in the morning to wait till the lights finally went out, run in the house and grab it, that woman and child and take off, you know. And that was my mama. She knew no fear at all. I love it. <laughs> and so and the civil rights movement took place. And particularly when you had uh, racial integration of schools and my mother was a teacher at uh, at one of the most uh, really one of the most complex situations in American history, and my mother stood right there with the public schools, and I could go on and on and on, uh, Bob. And but you but know, family mama. is family, and Mama's mama, and, and uh, boy, she was a great role model about taking on the challenge and loving your neighbor. 
David Beasley, I love you. What an honor to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this unlikely journey with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. And during this episode, you heard about Mr. Beasley. He'll be joining us at this historic event in March of 2022 called the Global Faith Forum. It will be one of the first national gatherings of Christians, Muslims, and other faith leaders. We'll gather to discuss bridging the gap in our communities as the fear between faiths shouldn't be something that causes us to destroy one another and the world we live in, but to understand one another and move forward building resilient communities together and you are invited. It's in Dallas, Texas, March 6th and 7th. Space is limited and it's filling up. So you can reserve your spot right now at globalfaithforum.com. For full show notes, links, and details of this episode, you can find those at bobrobertsjr.com or at boldlovepodcast.com. And we appreciate you joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor, and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith.